This is work in progress on how concrete and modern cement went from novelty to ubiquity in Montana communities, and it's part of broader work that I'm undertaking on the ongoing importance of stone in human society. This image is from the Great Falls Tribune. The, what I'm about to read is from the Helena Independent, November 23, 1891. Headline, Montana's Building. A description of the headquarters to be built at Chicago. Galbraith and Fuller of Missoula, whose plans have been adopted by the State Board of World's Fair Managers, furnished the following interesting description of the Montana building to be erected at Chicago. Quote, the entire building is constructed as to conform to the character of the other buildings now in course of erection. Quote, the lavatory rooms will be fitted up with all the modern conveniences, such as washstands, wall mirrors, urinals, water closets, etc. The walls of the lavatories will be wainscoted in native wood, Venetian doors and Portland cement floors thoroughly ventilated. The same text appeared five days later in Great Falls Tribune, which it then reprinted in March of 1892 with an updated timeline and the sketch. In the spring of 1893, this is the building that represented Montana at the exposition in Chicago. Urinals and Portland cement floors may no longer help a state fit in with the others, let alone show off to the world. But the Montana building's planners did know what they were doing. My urinals history knowledge has a lot of room for improvement, but I can say with confidence that their use of concrete in particular was a demonstration that Montanans were keeping up with modernity. Now, lest you think I'm doing something novel by talking about cement history, 100 years ago today, the Great Falls Daily Tribune printed this, quote, brief history of the cement industry. And this historical account of cement is, in fact, an advertisement taken out by the Borman Lumber Company of Great Falls. Whoever made marketing decisions at Borman Lumber took out the ad in anticipation of the First Avenue North Bridge that would soon cross the Missouri River. After the brief history of cement, which connected 20th century concrete back to the dominance of the Roman Empire, the ad announced that Borman had just facilitated the largest cement transaction in Great Falls history. The cement material was to be sourced, quote, from the Montana factories, which are located at Hanover and Three Forks. I'll return to this newspaper item, but for now we can take it to represent an era when cement use was common and expected in Montana. And cement was only newsworthy in particularly large projects. So ubiquitous concrete, this is a postcard from Livingston in 1910 with cement sidewalks and possibly cement posts between these iron rails on Yellowstone Street. So ubiquitous concrete, especially common in Montana's urban settings, made the environments most Montanans inhabited after 1910 differ essentially from the environments most Montanans had inhabited in 1889. The prevalence of concrete was one, and perhaps the, essential difference. Cemented materials and the meaning of cement structures had become dominant in any Montana setting that could be called modern, whether that setting was urban or pastoral. Quick note on cement versus concrete. Cement is any material that binds things together. Cement in sidewalks or building foundations is a binding material that people make by kilning, basically burning limestone. And concrete 
is simply a bunch of sand and probably gravel or even pebbles that have been mixed with cement to create a bulky but shapeable structure. So uh, cement is the active ingredient and the through line of this story, whether people were using cement in a mortar between stones or whether they were mixing it to make concrete. Close on the heels of Euro-American settlement. In late May of 1867, Frederick Merck, a hardware merchant in Virginia City, bought a series of ads in the Montana Post. The ads included hydraulic cement in a list of materials he had recently procured that, quote, will fill the want long felt in this territory. The cement Merck sold would have arrived in territorial Montana on wagons that delivered in sacks or, or possibly barrels, uh, probably unloaded from trains in Corn, Utah. The material itself may have been kilned in Europe or in upstate New York, and upstate New York then dominated American cement production. In the 1870s, early residents of Helena quarried the hills just south and southwest of us and kilned outcroppings of the Madison limestone formation. The result was active lime powder, which could be used in, in basic cement mortars. Lime, though, would not set underwater, but it could be used in a variety of building applications. American uh, and European immigrants to Montana kilned limestone, mostly the, the Madison limestone formation, not only near Helena, but also near Elliston, Bozeman, Lewistown, Anaconda, and more. However, through the 19th century, if early Montanans wanted cement with those hydraulic properties, which they increasingly did, then they imported the material along rails and roads. By the late 1880s, retailers including drugstores, hardware stores, lumber companies, and coal distributors offered a variety of hydraulic cements. Some known by particular brand names such as Akron, which was from upstate New York, but others were from Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley, southern Michigan, or Milwaukee. English and German cements continued to come into the new state. So side note number one was on cement versus concrete. Here's side note number two on the difference between, a little bit more on the difference between lime and hydraulic cement, and then I promise we'll be done with, with chemistry of rocks and on to more meaning of cement and concrete. But when kiln operators near Helena or in the Judith Mountains burned limestones, they were making quicklime. Quicklime created a cement sufficient for holding together a wall of bricks or stones, and early Montanans used lime cement to create courthouses and business districts that gave their towns a measure of respectability and worthiness according to predominant American values. But in other respects, lime mortar was insufficient. Lime cement was fast becoming outmoded. Frederick Merck and other merchants continued to deal in hydraulic cement even after early Montanans initiated lime kilning. Hydraulic cement was not just a binder, it was waterproof. Hydraulic cement resulted when producers quarried and kilned a particular limestone formation that also had a, a high clay content blended into the limestone, or when producers applied assaying practices and modern high-energy processing technologies to a combination of limestone and clay. We all know that many Montanans circa 1900 were familiar with both mineral assays and high-energy mineral processing. So in Montana, 
Though hydraulic cement threatened existing lime kilners, the new technologies of hydraulic cement production also held potential for generating mineral wealth. So here's a sketch of Helena done in 1868, about a year after Frederick Merck started advertising hydraulic cement in Virginia City. I just want to note the arrangement and organization of buildings and roads for a, a point of comparison. Look, this is a little bit of a strange angle on Helena, but you see what's going on here with the roads and, and streets. And then you see this perspective map from, uh, that was created in 1890. And even if Helena's roads weren't actually this orderly and predictable in 1890, the way that this map was drawn probably reflects the city leader's goals for streets and alleys. And cement, particularly as sidewalk and sewer infrastructure, would aid municipal projects that were bringing order to the cities. But it would also become a, a standard part of any notable building, cement would, such as those featured at the bottom of this perspective map. So the premise of this presentation is that between the 1880s and about 1910, cement use in Montana became, one, a representation of control over environmental factors that threatened the permanence and predictability early Montanans preferred. Two, cement became commonplace and really an expectation. And three, modern cement became supplied from within Montana. By the end of all this, Montanans had cities and sometimes even farms that they could call modern. So the goal of this presentation is now to explore how and why that happened. In the first couple decades of Montana's statehood, cements and increasingly hydraulic cements became standard in the state's communities. Cements were valuable to Montanans and Euro-American settler Montanans in particular. But why? There were three connected categories of, of value for cement in this period. Permanence, one is permanence and potential. The second is environmental control. And the third is capitalized property ownership. All these helped early Montanans replicate European and American ideals for orderly economic and social spaces. And I have a few stories to explain and exemplify each of those three aspects. This image is actually from an 1890 publication by the Missoula Board of Trade. I'll refer back to it shortly, but the, the point is that the building on the right is uh, the Western Montana National Bank. And unlike the building on the left, this building has uh, concrete front steps and concrete sidewalks. And those were noted in the, the write-up, which occurred on the, the page before this in the publication. Permanence and potential. These concepts are related to something that Montana city officials felt. And that's an imperative to catch up with other cities that were supposedly more advanced. And the way to catch up was by joining them in modern cement use. The desire of municipal officials and private property owners became to make Montana cities respectable according to ideals set by London or Paris or American urban centers that were all supposedly more advanced. Here are a couple quotes from newspapers in this era. This is from the Montanian in Shoto, and I actually excerpted this from 
this is a whole list. So it's headline Shoto has, and then there is just a list of like five ranchers, two uh, wood buildings, and then uh, it says one brick building, and then but a, a theme about bricks starts to come up. Like brick and mortar buildings are are good according to the Montagnan editor who just made this inventory that quickly turned into opinion about how Shoto should develop. So it says one of the items is room for more brick buildings. And then the, the final closing statement in this inventory slash opinion list is there are a number of frame buildings on Main Street that should be torn out and replaced with brick buildings. And this one is from the Dillon Tribune in 1903. Again, another editor who is was very much pressing the, the mortar and, and concrete use to establish the, the permanence of, of the town. Dillon has surely passed the village stage and is rapidly putting on city airs. This is 1903. The new cement sidewalks and crossings, the waterworks, and the second light, electric light plant are all substantial evidence of this. The emphasis on, on potential is clear in 1889 reports about uh, William Child adding a dairy operation to his famous ranch just southeast of us where this barn still stands. Headline, Better Butter, and saying Child's Creamery proposes to show what Montana can do, the article stated, the main creamery room floor is of solid Portland cement. It is the nucleus for the largest creamery plant in the world a big thing for Montana. He could use 30,000 or more gallons of milk a day if there was a demand for that butter. There was not. <laughs> and in May of 1896, J.D. Jenks, building inspector and assistant to city engineer in Butte, submitted a report that discussed a wide variety of paving options, some combining tar, wood, cement, and gravel. Then Jenks stated, unquestionably, the best pavements I have ever seen are the wooden pavements of London and Paris set upon six inches of hydraulic cement. Jenks suggested first replicating similar practices in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Duluth. So Butte had the potential to catch up with the greatest cities of the world, uh, but step one was catching up with Duluth. This is actually the sort of pavement that the Butte city engineer was talking about. Cement's ability to control Dust, water, and mud mattered, not just in terms of controlling water in the way we now think of with, with concrete headgates or, or dams, both of which mostly emerged later in Montana, but in terms of urban infrastructure, including protecting road investments, making basements into usable spaces, making floors and, and walls surfaces more washable. This, as I said, is the pavement style the Butte assistant city engineer was talking about and it's underlain with hydraulic cement concrete. So that waterproof material prevented the roadbed from getting damaged, and it made maintenance a relatively simple process of just putting in a new wood block as one gave out. Good concrete pavement meant water would flow to where you wanted it and wouldn't flow or pool up where you didn't want it. And early Montanans in cities used civic mechanisms to establish expectations for street and sidewalk conditions. You see this, for instance, in petitions to the Helena City Council starting in the late 1880s. 
They start as complaints about mud, just sort of asking city officials to do something. Here's one from 1887, signed by 20 Helena property owners, says, quote, to the Honorable the City Council of the City of Helena, Montana, the undersigned residents and taxpayers respectfully represent that Raleigh Street between 9th Avenue and 12th Avenue is in an impassable condition, that there are quite a number of residences along said street that are uncomfortably accessible for persons and not at all accessible for teams, that a comparatively small outlay of money will render it passable and thereby save traveling around other blocks. Therefore, we petition that said Raleigh Street as designated be made passable for teams and pedestrians. And that's a very general request to do something, but over time petitions got much more specific so that by around 1900 you see petitioners asking for a cement sidewalk that's to standard width specifications and runs from this block to this block on this side of the street and so on. So people had come to trust hydraulic cement to control water. And they had even come to trust particular brands. And this actually led to a series of headline-grabbing problems when Montana contractors skirted those specifications that they had agreed to. An example, in May of 1895, an Anaconda Standard headline read, it's a very bad case for the new high school in Great Falls. The contractors were being investigated for corruption and fraud. Allegations included overuse of sand in their mortar and use of some Akron brand natural cement where specification had called for Portland cement only. A follow-up two weeks later in the standard gave a summary of testimonies, including a long one from a plasterer on whether American Portland is equal to English Portland and how much Akron was used instead of Portland. There was also one color-based testimony where the, uh, the witness said that yellow cement was used instead of Portland cement, which is blue. I can't verify uh, anything about what colors meant in cement in the 1890s. Two days after that, the Great Falls Weekly Tribune reported that after an inspection, the architect trusted the building foundation to do its weight-bearing and water-sealing jobs despite the apparent cement fraud. So here's capitalizing on property ownership as a part of increasing cement use in Montana. Property owners could make their residences and or commercial facilities more marketable by employing concrete during this time, um, and actually even going a little bit before this time. So this sort of property improvement by cement use started largely in the 1870s with concrete homes in Helena. I haven't found yet images of those particular homes, but these are a similar era of headline-grabbing homes. This one is in the London area, and this one is in Greenwich, Connecticut. But in May of 1875, the Helena Weekly Herald reported a W.H. Allen was building a concrete house that the Herald called the first of its kind in this country. Coarse gravel, the principal material used, is in great abundance around here. Claimed that concrete walls can be put up far cheaper than brick, stone, or wood. And an update a couple months later said the concrete home was, quote, looming upwards. From appearances, the experiment will prove a success. That structure doesn't seem to be there anymore. It was at about 10th and Ewing, if you're familiar with Helena. But cement use then moved from 
residences into commercial buildings, with concrete floors or foundations becoming a notable feature not only of that bank in Missoula that we saw a few slides ago, but also of retail operations, warehouses, and buildings for agricultural storage and processing. In 1887, the Helena Cement Stoneworks created pieces of colored tile cement work for, quote, the residence grounds of A.J. Fisk, corner of Rodney and 8th, that were, quote, very much admired and, quote, practically imperishable, becoming harder as the months and years roll on. But you didn't have to put finished cement on your property to raise its value. You could also sell the potential cement that already existed under your land. So prospecting for cement materials in Montana's subsurface, finding a, a, a place that might be good for cement production became a thing. So in September of 1890, the Great Falls Semi-Weekly Tribune had a blurb on slate quarry owners Ringwald, Riggs, and Blanding. Their quarry was in, in Monarch, in the Little Belts near Riceville. They were running tests on the material that was in the bedrock there to see if it would make good hydraulic cement. And this article said that if so, they were poised to commence extensive developments at once. So marking the minerals under one's land as suitable for cement production became a, another way that Montanans understood the mineral value of their new state. In July of 1906, a Fort Benton River Press front page headline read, Montana Cement, officials of Reclamation Service will need thousands of barrels. It repeated previous reports of an unfailing supply of natural cement rock and the raw materials for the manufacture of Portland cement near Haver and Fort Assiniboine. And it also said the U.S. Reclamation Service has four large projects in Montana, which have been approved by the Secretary of the Interior. Quote, the present unprecedented demand for cement all over the West is already taxing the capacity of mills throughout the country. It's to be hoped that Uncle Sam's government sees fit to put into operation a plant in Montana. For such a move would do more good than anything else to give the cement industry a footing in Montana. Montana cement for Montana irrigation projects should be the slogan of all citizens who have Montana's best interest at heart. Getting the federal government to invest in a Haver area cement plant was a plan B after plans had fallen through the previous year. So in 1905, owners of those so-called cement rock deposits near Haver had been writing the superintendent of the B&M smelter, trying to get him to divulge how much cement that Great Falls operation consumed. The landowners said a group of, quote, Eastern capitalists were ready to build a plant but wanted to know more about potential revenue. So, by 1910, the Haver plant seems to have been dead, and the revenue potential in Montana was worse anyway. Three Forks Portland Cement Company had their operation in Trident running full bore. A Canadian immigrant named Dan Morrison, who had some cement production experience east in the Hudson Valley before moving to Montana, joined his geologic and processing know-how with the capital of some moneyed investors. The cement plant in Trident filled in a gap in the U.S. where cement was being consumed but not produced. It may be hard to see, but this map has a red dot for every cement plant in the country in 1904. There's one in eastern North Dakota. There's one in eastern Washington. And then there's one in Salt Lake, but there are none 
in the northern Rockies. In 1908, Montana got the Trident plant, and around the same time, a Portland cement plant opened in Orofino, Idaho. Returning to this clever ad, it is the last instance I found of a, of a specific term in uh, Montana newspapers in the Library of Congress archive, and that term is hydraulic cement. So I'm taking this as evidence of at least three things. By 1919, most all cement in use in Montana was a modern product for which the qualifier hydraulic was unnecessary. Any cement in common use would have had so-called hydraulic properties, meaning the cement powder contained enough clay minerals to set underwater and to thereafter become fairly impermeable. Two, by that time, cement use in Montana was commonplace. Decades earlier, a Helena businessman or a Bozeman farmer could garner headlines for simply using concrete on their property. But now, concrete became newsworthy only when a company decided to make it so, touting their role as a cement provider for a major bridge project in the state's second largest city. Three, cement in Montana had become a form of mineral extraction and processing that, unusually for the state, was primarily for the regional market. Like copper, cement minerals were of utmost importance to the emergence of the modern United States. But unlike copper, cement minerals mostly stayed in Montana. Between the 1880s and 1910, early Montanans had not only made concrete an ordinary part of their lives, their own mineral practices applied towards cement had facilitated a sort of regional concrete self-sufficiency. Thank you.